listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 20 beginning at verse 1 we're going to read the first 17 verses. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. Amen. This is God's word. Well, here at Trinity, we're beginning a new sermon series this afternoon, uh, looking at the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, famously, are a summary of the law that God has given us to live by. The Ten Commandments are the moral laws that are to govern our moral lives, what we are to do and not do, how we are to conduct ourselves in relation to God and in relation to our fellow human beings. You'll often see the Ten Commandments engraved in the walls of old church buildings, like in Chester Cathedral. It was at one point commonplace to have the Ten Commandments on display in places like schools and courtrooms, Uh, in order to remind people what our standards for living are. I I don't have any statistics to hand, but I expect that the number of schools and courtrooms displaying the Ten Commandments is far smaller today than it once was. Uh, Children, I expect that you haven't noticed the Ten Commandments hanging on your wall in school, uh, probably because they're not there. And the fact that there are less schools and courtrooms displaying the Ten Commandments, that's not really the, the most important issue at all, but in our society in general, and even in our churches... We're not overly familiar with the Ten Commandments today. 
When we debate with one another what is right and what is wrong, when we wrestle internally with what we should do or shouldn't do in any given situation, how often do we make a conscious effort to apply the Ten Commandments to the particular issue we're facing? And it's not so much that the idea of having rules to live by has fallen out of fashion. A few years ago, a psychiatrist named Jordan Peterson published a book titled 12 Rules for Life, which quickly became a bestseller. Earlier this year, the same author published another book with the subtitle 12 More Rules for Life, received reviews such as life-changing and inspirational. There is a hunger in our society for, uh, for guidance in how to live. You see it in social media posts, in blog posts, that present you with seven habits of successful people, 18 habits of highly productive people. They have to have more, they're highly productive. Call them habits, call them principles, whatever, but the idea of having rules that should govern the way we live our lives, it hasn't fallen out of fashion, even if the Ten Commandments have. And yet as we spend these upcoming weeks thinking about the Ten Commandments, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that the Ten Commandments are just one other option for us when it comes to how we should live our lives, as though you could walk into Waterstones and see 12 rules for life, the seven habits of highly effective people, and the Ten Commandments. Because even if you might find some wisdom in some of those other books, what you won't find, I can guarantee you, in the introduction are the words that we read at the beginning of Exodus 20 in verse 1, and God spoke all these words. The Ten Commandments are in a class of their own because they have been given, they have been spoken by God himself. In fact, if we're going to understand the Ten Commandments at all, then we need to begin here. We need to begin with God, because that's where God begins. Before God speaks the first commandment in verse 3, he introduces all that he is about to command by introducing himself, by reminding his people who he is and what he has done. He says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, and it's significant. If we miss it, if we just gloss over it in a hurry to get to what we ought to do and not do, then we're inevitably going to misunderstand the Ten Commandments because before the Ten Commandments are about us and what we do, they're about God and what he does. So I want us to look at three things today, really simple headings. God's grace, God's instruction, and God's mercy. First of all, then, God's grace When God gave the Ten Commandments to his people, he did so in the context of grace. That is, he did not say to Israel, his people in the Old Testament, if you keep these commandments, then you will be my people. This wasn't a test for them. This isn't an invitation to earn your way into God's favour. Because before God even gave any of the commandments, he first redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. The whole book of Exodus up until this point has been all about the redemption that that God has accomplished for his people. And then as he is about to give the commandments, he draws his people's attention to the fact that he had delivered them. So look again at what he says in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God doesn't say... If you live like this, then I will be your God. But I am the Lord your God. Now live like this. And this order was something that God wanted to be ingrained on the minds of his people. So so in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
God's people are reminded again in Deuteronomy 5 of the Ten Commandments. Many of the first generation of, of Israelites who had been rescued from slavery in Egypt by this point had died. And, and so Moses in Deuteronomy 5 is, is restating the Ten Commandments for the next generation. And after he had reiterated them, reiterated the Ten Commandments, he gives instructions, interestingly, to parents in how they are to explain the Ten Commandments to their children. And in Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, we read this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. Do you see the emphasis here? Parents in the church, parents in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they're not merely to teach their children to keep the Ten Commandments, but they're to teach their children why they are to keep the Ten Commandments. Why are they to keep the Ten Commandments? Because, as Moses explains in verse 21, they were Pharaoh's slaves, but the Lord brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord delivered them. He rescued them. He redeemed them. The Lord is their deliverer, their rescuer, their redeemer. And the reason that God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt was not because Israel somehow deserved their deliverance. But rather, as Moses goes on to stress again in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, house, uh, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Israel had not somehow earned enough points that they somehow triggered God's favour. The people of Israel had not earned their way into God's good books. The reason God delivered them was simply that he set his love on them and chose them. That is what we mean when we use this term, grace. Sometimes older Christian writers would have emphasised this by using the term free grace. God freely simply because he willed that he would, set his love on his people and delivered them. They did not earn it, but God freely gave it grace. And this is the context in which God gives the Ten Commandments. He shows grace. By his grace, he delivers, he rescues, he redeems. And then he says to his redeemed people, now here is how you ought to live. And just as this context, this order needed to be ingrained on the mind of God's people in the Old Testament. It needs to be ingrained on ours too. Because even as people living in light of the New Testament, the way to know God is still not by law-keeping, but it's by grace. The way to be made right with God, the way to receive forgiveness, the way for your conscience to be at peace, is not to clean up your life and start living according to the Ten Commandments. But the way to know God, the way to be made right with God is to abandon all your efforts to somehow earn your way into his good books and simply to receive the rescue that he has provided for you. And the rescue that we need is not rescue from a nation that's made us slaves, 
but it's a res- it is still a rescue from slavery. The Bible speaks of us being enslaved to sin. And we're unable to free ourselves. We, we can't do it. We need a redeemer. And God, in his grace, has provided the redeemer he, we need in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, the call to each of us today is to turn to him, turn to Christ in faith, to be made right with God, to receive the forgiveness of your sins and peace of conscience and all the other blessings that are freely given in him. We're going to keep coming back to this point as we go through the Ten Commandments because we just so easily lose sight of it. We need it drumming into us time and again that the context for the Ten Commandments is one of grace. First grace, then law. First redemption, then a changed life. But there's something else that we need to recognise as we focus on God's grace here at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and it's this. God shows his grace to his people in the form of a covenant. Now, what does that mean? Well, it might be helpful to think of it like this. When God redeems his people, when he rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, when he rescues us from slavery to sin, he does not simply rescue us and then leave us to ourselves. But in rescuing us, he brings us into relationship with himself. We see this again in verse 2. God does not simply say, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. There's a personal emphasis here. Because the people of Israel are in a personal relationship with God. And one question we should then ask is, well, what kind of relationship is this? Because there are all kinds of relationships, aren't there? There exist in the world. Friendships, there are workplace relationships, there are manager-employee relationships, there are teacher-student relationships, and so on and so on. So what kind of relationship do we have with God? And the answer is that there is a covenant relationship. Again, that's hinted at in verse 2 when God says, I'm the Lord your God. This is not just personal language, it's, it's covenantal language. And again, in Deuteronomy, when Moses explains to the next generation of Israelites all that happened here around the time of Exodus 20, he says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. All of which is to say, that the Ten Commandments are given not only in the context of grace, but also in the form of a covenant relationship with God. Now, uh, later in the autumn, uh, we're planning on spending some more time on Sundays studying what the Bible teaches about covenant. We're not going to go into it in too much detail at this point, but it is helpful to have some kind of definition uh, in your mind when it comes to what we're talking about when we talk about covenant. So, So here's a really basic definition. A covenant is a conditional promise. Okay? Uh, Maybe that's a little bit basic to be useful. Uh, So here it is in a little bit more detail. This is taken, by the way, from a a book on biblical covenants written by one of our elders in in IPC, John T. Rhodes. He says, in the Bible, a covenant is an agreement between God and human beings. And in the agreement, there are conditions that need to be met. 
And God promises certain blessings if those conditions are met and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Now, perhaps that's not basic enough to be useful without going into more detail. So what might be most helpful is to keep in mind the illustration that the Bible uses to explain God's covenant relationship with his people. And the illustration the Bible uses is that of a marriage relationship. A marriage relationship is a covenantal relationship. It's a covenant relationship. And when you go to a wedding ceremony, what you witness is a man and a woman binding themselves to one another by making promises. The husband and the wife promise to take each other, to have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and so on. And after they've made those promises to one another, the minister pronounces them to be husband and wife, bound together in a covenant relationship. And this covenant relationship, a marriage relationship, is the illustration that's used throughout the Bible to describe God's relationship with his people because God's relationship with his people is a covenant relationship. Now, God's relationship with his people is not the same in every way as a human marriage relationship. There are significant differences. Perhaps the most important difference Uh, is that in a human marriage, the husband and wife, they covenant together as equals. They each make promises to each other as equals. There's no one superior party, no one inferior party. They're equals. But in God's relationship with his people, that's just not the case. In God's covenant relationship with his people, God is superior in every way, which means that he has to establish this covenant relationship. There is no mutual establishing of it. Like in a human marriage, we cannot strike up this relationship with God. We need him to initiate it. And what we see in the words of this introduction in verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is that God is willing to establish this covenant relationship with his people. God must be the one to act first. We are are so inferior to God as his creatures and as his creatures who have rebelled against him that we cannot possibly invite him to make a covenant with us. He must be the one who draws up the terms of the covenant. He must be the one to invite us to enter into it. And that is exactly what he has done. He has established a covenant which we can enter into with him. Not because we're his equal, but because he is a God of grace. He graciously extends the invitation to us and says, I will be your God. I will deliver you, rescue you, redeem you, if you will trust in me. Those were the terms for God's people in the Old Testament, and they're the terms for us today. I will be your God, he promises. I will deliver you, rescue you, redeem you, You'll put your faith in the one I have sent as your Redeemer, my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith don't just enter into a relationship with God in an abstract sense, but they enter into a covenant relationship with him. It's like a marriage in which God promises that as your God, he will faithfully remain your God and your Redeemer from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health. He promises 
He binds himself to you and promises that he will faithfully love and cherish you. And in the end, he will bring you safely through death into the fullness of his presence. So it forces us to ask the question, is that how we view our relationship with God? Do we view it as a relationship in which God has bound himself to us in covenant love out of his sheer grace? Because that is what he has done for all who trust in Christ. And what God has joined together in this instance will never be separated. Uh, Seeing our relationship with God in in that way is important because it helps us to understand the Ten Commandments in their place. Our keeping of the Ten Commandments is not what establishes this relationship. Instead, God in his grace establishes this relationship and then calls his people, those he has made a covenant with, to live faithfully to their God. And again, it's helpful to think of the marriage illustration. If a husband loves his wife, he, he wants to be faithful to her. And it is as though God is making clear to his people in the Ten Commandments, this is what it looks like to be faithful to our God. And so when we realise what it is that God has done for us in graciously redeeming us, as we are drawn to love him more and more, this is what a life of love looks like. And so in this context, we come to the first commandment. And in this context, it makes complete sense. We've been looking at God's grace. Now, secondly, I want us to look more briefly at God's instruction to us in the first commandment. God commands us in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. When we understand that the Ten Commandments are given in a context of covenant relationship, like a marriage relationship, the first commandment makes complete sense because God is making it clear that the covenant relationship between him and his people is an exclusive relationship, just like a marriage is. A husband doesn't just owe his wife affection, but he owes his wife his exclusive affection. That is to say, there's there's no room for any other women or any other men in the marriage relationship. A husband and wife owe each other their exclusive affection. And again, you see this in the words that we'll often hear in a wedding ceremony. The minister asks the, the man and the woman, Will you have this man or this woman to to be your husband, your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honour and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? The man and the woman, they're asked whether they will, as part of their covenant together, forsake all others. That is... Will they give their affection, their love, exclusively to the other person, to no one else? And it is as though in the first commandment, God is commanding his people to do the same, to forsake all others, to worship him alone, to view him alone as their God, and not to treat anything else as their God. And the way that this commandment is worded is is really interesting. When God commands us not to have any other gods before him, He means that we're not to have any other gods in his presence. Uh, That's what this word before means. Uh, It it doesn't mean that we we can have other gods just as long as they don't rank before this God. That's not what God's talking about. He's not talking about ranking or order. 
This word before, it means presence, before God, in in God's presence. We're commanded not to have any other gods in his presence before him. And when you start to think that through, because God is God, he is everywhere and we are always in his presence. It means that we're being commanded simply not to have any other gods. If that's the meaning of the commandment, why doesn't God just say that? Why doesn't he just command us, you shall not have any other gods? Why does he add this qualification, you shall not have any other gods before me in my presence? And the answer is that God is making it clear that we owe to him our exclusive worship, not only externally, but also internally in our hearts. Because by wording the commandment this way, God is pressing us to recognize the fact that even if nobody else around you knows that you have another God, God knows. Because you're always in his presence. And so everything you do is before him. God is pressing us to recognize that true worship is not only what we do outwardly, Coming to church, reading the Bible, praying, even keeping the Ten Commandments in an external sense. But true worship, the kind of worship that God is owed in this covenant relationship, is a matter of the heart. You know, that means that we can break the first commandment not only blatantly by literally worshipping other so-called gods of other religions, but also in a less blatant manner, a more subtle manner. Because we can worship other gods in our heart. We're not necessarily talking about other gods of of other religions here because we break the first commandment whenever we trust in anything other than God. Whenever we love anything more than we love God. We're going to be thinking about this a little bit more on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. If you can't make that, then let me encourage you just to sign up to the email address, uh, the uh, email list, and watch the videos that get emailed out on Tuesday. But if you want to know what the, what, what the particular other gods might be in your life, then you can ask yourself two questions. What do you put your trust in? And what do you love? When you've had a particularly bad day or a bad week, in times of trouble, when life is difficult, what do you turn to? For some people it's obvious, they turn to certain superstitions or or addictions, but for others it's more subtle. They turn to things that are in themselves good things, but they turn to them in such a way that they're asking them to, in a sense, deliver them to do what God can only do. It could be virtually anything. Retail therapy. The the god of new stuff. Hobbies. Chasing the latest upgrade. Relationships. Anything we trust in to, in a sense, deliver us from our trouble is another god which we have before God. Well, the other question, what do you love? What do you get excited about? What do you daydream about? What do you find pleasure in? Again, it could be a good thing, but if we give it the central place in our affections, the place that belongs only to God, then it becomes another God, one of the others whom we ought to forsake. It is demanding, isn't it? It is challenging to reflect on this. 
But don't the best relationships we know make demands of us? Demands that we're happy to meet when we love the other person. We shouldn't be surprised that this covenant relationship with God, with this God of grace, makes demands of us. God brings us into a covenant relationship with himself by his grace. He instructs us in the Ten Commandments as to what a life of covenant faithfulness looks like. But what do we do when we are unfaithful to the covenant? When we are unfaithful to God? What do we do when we who have trusted in Christ, when we've been brought into this relationship with God through him, what do we do when we fail to forsake all others? When we do trust in and love other gods? Well, thirdly, finally, really briefly, we need to recognise that God's grace extends to us not only to the point that he establishes this covenant with us, but to the point that he has written into the terms of the covenant the provision of mercy for all who are unfaithful, which, by the way, is every single one of us. We see this when we come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. This is what God has given us as a constant reminder of the covenant relationship he has established with us. Just think about that. He hasn't given us two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on to be held up and read out as a constant reminder of the covenant. But he has given us bread and wine things that point not to our requirement to keep the law but things that point to the life and death of the one who has kept the law in our place and who has died in our place this is what God has given us to remind us of the terms of the covenant and it reminds us that there is mercy for all who are unfaithful to their covenant God. And in a sense, every time we take the Lord's Supper, the covenant that God has established with us is being renewed. As marriage vows sometimes get renewed, yet the, the focal point of this renewal is not our promise to God, but God's promise to us. All who are unfaithful to their God, but repent and turn to Christ in faith, receive mercy. And when we begin to realise how gracious and how merciful this God is to us, we naturally want to turn to him and say, My Lord, my God, I will forsake all others to live for you. It's as though we say to him, in the words of that, that old song, Take my hand. And take my whole life too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your, your kindness in establishing this covenant relationship with your people out of grace. And we thank you for even the provision of mercy, the provision of forgiveness for sins that is part of this covenant. And we ask that you would help us now as your people to be renewed in our willingness, our eagerness, our desire 
to have no other gods before you, to forsake all others and live for you and worship you alone. We ask that you would bless us now as we come to the Lord's table in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.